0: Hi, welcome to By Being, Be Right Back podcast. I'm Giona. I am Ava. And we know each other from way back when, when we were in our early threes up to the thirteens and now in our almost thirties. Thirties. We both have been living in the Netherlands for almost 10 years and we both have been missing the conversation of what it means to be Caribbean in the Netherlands. We, too, deserve representation within the community we live in, and we have a responsibility to also give space for those who have this need to feel represented. These conversations are a good start at that, but certainly not the last step. For us, it's the by culture that struck a chord. As Caribbean migrants, we have a strong legacy of coming and going, making a home everywhere seeking for familiarity within the community we constantly place ourselves in. But still, we find ourselves coming back to our roots, to our home, and realize that coming from the Caribbean is a meaning that is an ongoing process. We tried to find the closest translation to by being, and we agreed that Be Right Back was the best choice. In this podcast, we go on a journey with different guests to find out what this means for them, while also looking at the different experiences within migrating back and
1: forth from this area. It's a podcast on the culture of being from and going back and forth to the Caribbean. Both Guiana and I are from Aruba. Both our experiences are with coming and going, back and forth, as it has given us the privilege to not only have a home in Aruba, but also being able to build a home in the Netherlands. However, our experiences with the whole situation is very complex. And so we find it important and essential to learn from our other Caribbean islands what their experience was.:
0: Hi everyone. Thank you for listening. Already to the third episode of "Be Right Back" by Bing Podcast. Like you already mentioned in the intro, I am Giona. And
1: I am Ava. And today we are going to be talking with our guests, Quinn Sigario and Lizen Delgado on our third episode, which is called The Parallel Life. And that is actually the literal translation as well for the by being. In this episode, we're going to focus on how we eventually find our way in Dutch spaces as Caribbean immigrants living in the Netherlands from preparing to move away to receiving micro and macro shocks and what we we will be covering in the next hour, how men internally and mentally change started to take place within us and how we look at our homeland now, now that we have practiced our Bible culture and have made a certain routine out of it. What are the common ways of being back home that we need to let go of to find a way in the daily Dutch society? How do we cope with this internal negotiation in institutional spaces, let's say work or the government, for example, and how do we keep our Caribbean roots alive while living in a space where you actually kind of put your Caribbean identity aside? Well, let me begin.
0: And the first thing I actually want to mention is like, you know, like where to begin? I feel like this changes per day, this constant negotiation that Ava has already mentioned. Um, I must say that the past two years after being here, for about seven to eight years, I finally felt like I found my way. Uh, that is mostly because I was starting to do what I love to do for my work. It wasn't even for the reason that I came here and that was to study, but I already mentioned that in the first and second episode. I was getting projects that made me happy and I felt like it had, I had a purpose and I felt less alone. And because of the fact that institutions were having fun crossing words like diversity and inclusion off of their list with people with embodiments like mine, um, it was, that was also the negotiation because I still needed to grow in my confidence, but all of these institutions wanted my capital in the sense of the information that I have or the ideas that I have, but what were they really putting in to change? So it wasn't just like uh, negotiating my Caribbean identity. It was also negotiating how do I even move in institutional spaces that want that part of my identity, but don't allow me to fully, you know, embody it or be it. Um, It was also a financial thing. You know, I got paid for my labor, obviously. It was a project that I got paid for, but I ended up doing the extra work, um, as in, constantly code switching and needing to explain to people in institutions oftentimes uh, about why I wanted or not wanted wanted to do certain things from marketing um, choices to who I wanted to work with or that they thought I needed to work with. Work kind of became an escape, to be honest, for me, Uh, notions of like the grind and Uh, really building a name for myself, that, that, that started to become a thing. And that made me also like, you know, end up in a burnout in 2019, which made me see things differently. So that, that has been my parallel life. If I speak for myself, it's this constant negotiation of being myself, Giona and what that means in Aruba is obviously different than what it means for me in the Netherlands, but that's also because I'm a different age. I'm a grown-ass adult now, and I was young when I was born there, obviously, and growing up as a teenager. I now have to have more responsibilities because I'm an adult, but also like we mentioned in the first, and I think also second episode, moving to the Netherlands um, made makes a lot of students take big financial risks. and. Um, that also puts an extra burden in that, that that liminal space of coming, going back and forth and wanting to go back to Aruba to, you know, be able to breathe. But do I have the money to pay for a ticket constantly, like five to 600 euros? So for me, that liminal space, that in between life right now, up until now, 10 years later, really shows itself as a um, negotiation of doing what I love. But kind of pushing back the powers that want what I have to offer without really giving me the true space to um, embody that fully. I think that for now is enough for me to say.
1: Yeah, no, I I hear a lot of things in there, especially um, the whole preservation on your being, especially when you work in different places and you do the different things that are being asked from you at that very moment. Um, And I totally feel you when you say that the last two years, if you mentioned that you've really gotten like a hold of what you want to do and what you don't want to do, because I think that's the most important one, of course, and how you want to place yourself within certain institutions when you get certain assignments. Um, I I can definitely relate to that because for me, these past two years have also been the way that I feel like I've gotten like that power, that self-gained power that I already had to take, you know, what was mine a long time ago. But after almost eight years of navigating through so many spaces and finding your way through uh, the dance academy, in my case, you know, um, that's very rough. So it takes a toll on you mentally, emotionally and physically. And, um, you know, along that way, you do love the work that you do, of course, because I do love the work that I do. I mean, uh, I couldn't be happier in that sense. But um, it is my passion and I am someone who loves to work on, but I do need the confirmation that it will be compensated in that sense. Um, and so once I remember being invited to a seminar at the biggest ballet company in the Netherlands, and I thought that was amazing because, you know, uh, you don't get invited to such a thing just out of nowhere. And um, I got there. And uh, one of the reasons why they invited me was because I was specializing in teaching ballet, which we know is a very Western style of dance. So for that reason, uh, I was invited to go and well, I was beaming. But when I got there, um First of all, the the seminar was about how to bring more diversity within um, your your audience and in the ballet dance company members as well. So I was very interested in that because you know I come from Aruba and I dance ballet. That's already like a big, you know, there's pretty a big contrast there in its in its own. So when I got there, it was me and one under one other attendant that were the only non-white people there, and the rest of the attendees looked at us like. So, what what do we have to do? And I'm like, whoa, okay. Like you guys are using the word diversity so easily in the dance world, but in practice, there really is a lot to work on. And I feel like in the Netherlands, there is a majority of the Dutch community that make it the responsibility of the BIPOC people to come up with solutions on how to create more diversity. But then we're not the ones who I feel should be questioned in that in that scenario. So, um, and the same counts for many dance companies. So I think for me, it was and it still is important to not only find work that I love because I do create my own work in that sense. Uh, you do the same, uh, Guiana, But it's also uh, a way to find a place where there's inclusion, representation, and an open environment, which can be difficult to find. But I have found it, let's put it like that. And I think it's a little pearl within all of the big industrial dance academy worlds that we have out there, or the more places that you can work with with the paper that I have. but. I'm happy to be along this point, but it took a very long time to get here.
0: Yeah, and something that really makes me think about what you said, because we talk about these things often, uh, you and I, Ava, because we've known each other for so long, is that um, it's also not... Often people forget that it's also resources thing so it's extra labor but it's also like I would like to make more of my own work if I had more structural resources building own institutes or own forms of organization to do more of my own things and with people who embody that so it's not only. The words that people speak within institutions to extract that it's also the fact that we have systems that aren't conducive to structural resources and spaces for people to really, you know, different types of people from different cultures to really, um, yeah, put out what they are here to do in this country as well. Um, Before we go further with our lovely guests, we also, again, like we did mention before, but we want to mention again that these conversations are coming from a as much as possible critical point of view, and that we are all very aware that they are still happening in some form of um, uh, institutional context Um, so it's not a definite um, conversation it's an open conversation in that sense and we just share our thoughts Uh, we find similarities but we also find differences and it's important to address these together.
1: Yes uh, even though we have some struggles and different consciousness that we need to embody and develop being in different spaces in different countries and in different cultures and the the adaptability to be able to uh, find our ways within that. um, These proximities do teach us to be resilient as well, and maybe a little too much that may be a bit healthy as well. So in either way, we do find that there is a lot that we have to take on when we come here. And How do we find ourselves within that navigation when we are in different Dutch spaces? And how do we keep our our Caribbean identity alive in that sense? Um, And I think today we would like to go more into that with our guests, uh, Quincy and Lee Zen, um, in that parallel life especially that today we're gonna be talking about, of course. So before we ask the first question to our guests, Um, And I would like to actually begin with Quincy, would you like to maybe introduce yourself, uh, what you do and who you are?
2: I'm uh, Quincy Gario. Um, I'm from Curacao and St. Martin. Um, I want to stress that sometimes people think I'm only from Curacao because that's where I was born, but I'm raised on St. Martin. I actually came with a scholarship from St. Martin to come study in the Netherlands. So I'm like, hey, it's my duty to let them know um i'm a I'm a troublemaker also from that island <laughs> um, i have a performance poetry background theater background um arts background i teach i give lectures um presentations i'm on panels i do a whole host of different things and recently um uh, some friends of mine have been telling me no i'm i'm not a troublemaker i'm a troubleshooter and i think that's a it's a nice term,
1: yeah. Thank you very much, Troubleshooter. We uh, thank you so much. And I would like to ask Lizen, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience who is listening to the podcast today?
3: Um, yeah, my name is Lizen Delgado. Um, yeah, for this podcast, I think it's valuable to know that uh, my parents are from Cape Verde, the islands of Santo Uh, And I was born and raised in the Netherlands. I moved to Curacao in 2014, lived here, I'm currently in Curacao, lived here for a couple of years. And after that started living in between the Netherlands and Curacao. Uh, My partner still lives in Curacao. um, And we're about to have a baby. (laughs) So that baby is going to be living in between as well. Um, Then as for what I do, I'll be defending my PhD research in December, which is on human rights education and the relation to racism, and more specifically the global color line. Um, And my question that I have researched is, uh, to what extent does human rights education contribute to um, keeping that line intact? Or to what extent does it uh, actually try to eliminate it? um yeah so um researcher educator uh, and i'd like to see myself as a storyteller as well that's that's Thanks. thanks.
1: <laughs> thank you very much Lisa. so we're gonna go to our first question already i think you guys are ready my co-host the first question what do you exchange or hold back or deliberately forget when you're trying to find your place within a Dutch frame or a Dutch space. Quincy, would you like to go first? When we speak of identity, specifically Caribbean identity, one cannot speak of the Caribbean identity, but one can speak of a Caribbean identity. Taking a closer look at the word identity and its literal meaning, the fact of being who or what a person or thing is. Another meaning is, Having a close similarity or affinity. The word Caribbean, as we explained in episode one, is a meaning with multiple layers, not only in its literal meaning, but as well as the topology of the Caribbean. Putting identity and Caribbean together creates yet once more endless definitions to what that could mean to each individual who identifies with being Caribbean. If there is anything to say about common ground between current day Caribbean identities, it's most probably the colonialism background that Caribbean identities are intertwined with, which brings forward the fact that we have not one, but multiple identity formation factors. For example, the location of where in the Caribbean a person is born. Because of the new forces of globalization in the contemporary world, we can look at identity as an area of constant change, which as a result, emerges more Caribbean identities. The dynamic character of different Caribbean identity formation results in interchangeable and active alternations that are connected to the place one is from and its relation to that place. For example, in Aruba, there are different generations of Filipino and Surinamese people. Depending on the generation you speak to, they will refer to themselves as an Arubian or Filipino Arubian, or Filipino, for example. The same can be said about people from the Surinamese diaspora in Aruba. Looking at the Biping culture that the core of this podcast is built on, we can also say that we live multiple identities at once, the identity both at home and overseas, as we form our national and our social identities in the nest we are born in, and eventually move abroad to discover more fragments of who we are, discovering our universal and our trans-Caribbean identity. Identity can also be a survival mechanism when observing it from a cultural point of view. For example, an island's national event that is organized by the Department of Culture has means to reinforce the consciousness that you are indeed a unique human being who forms part of a community with a certain culture, speaks a certain language, and has cultural norms and values. It also holds preservation meaning, to keep alive what is considered to be part of a country or islands indigenous and traditional foundation, which in today's modern world is of importance to keep. When one is born in the Caribbean, the identity that you form is absolutely fluid to say the least. The identity that we know before we begin our migrant lives in the Netherlands is utterly different than the identity we acknowledge with today. As we discover more about who we are and where we come from, the affinities that we associate with come not only from our own circle, but especially with other Caribbean islanders. And this becomes part of us too. Look at, for example, the fact that we can code switch from four different languages coming from Aruba. Realizing the origin of certain traditions and certain routines that we have grown up with and taken with us when we move abroad shows us that our identity imparts some sense of security. It bestows belonging. And the larger the tribe, the greater the warmth. The Caribbean identity is so unique that it is really an everlasting formation, a feeling, a daily change, and is one of the most fluid
2: identities in the world. Wait, could you repeat the question? That was a long question.
1: Put it in the chat, Ava. Okay. I'll say it one more time. Yeah. What do you exchange? Or what do you hold back? Or what do you maybe deliberately forget when you try to find yourself within a Dutch space or within a Dutch frame?
2: I mean. Mm, not much. I think um. I think, for me, it's also this question of what exactly is a Dutch frame? Um, And I think if we're talking about a context which is um, from a group that has a dominant position within the society, um, then it's more about thinking through ways in which the the conversation, the exchange, the meetings are based on um, a certain expectation of me. Um, and I think what's what's been interesting, what I've recently also realized is that that expectation doesn't necessarily lead to me deliberately forgetting something or holding back something or... Um, wanting to exchange something, but it leads to me realizing once again that, oh yeah, wait, even though I'm presenting myself as I always do, um, I still first need to contend with the fact that people see a concept before they see me. And I think in my case, it's also that people see a concept of like an angry black man first. Um, or to see a concept of um, the the Caribbean uh, person that's here to demand um, reparations in one way or another um, or someone that's always on the attack mode while I could just be laughing and people are already like in their fields right. <laughs> <So> <laughs> <laughs> so, I've come to realize, like, okay, wait. Um, first, I need to, I need to name this so that people are aware of what's going on. And after I name it, then I can do what I what I want to want to do or say. And I realize that even the naming of what's going on can be seen as violent, or can be seen as uh, aggressive, or can be seen as something that you know causes someone to lash out. Um, and that's something I've had to work with. And I think it's, it's, it's in that sense also interesting, um, this gendered aspect of it, um, as a black man, as a black Caribbean man, um, as a man whose accent, some people don't always know where to place, um, and they get quite confused. And I think it's a confusion which causes a certain type of reaction, um. So it's not necessarily a complete answer to your question, but it's it's gathering ways of understanding this, this idea of of dominance and um, what dominance does to how I manifest myself in different places. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Quincy. No, you uh, answered that question just fine, to be honest. Uh, it's not an easy question either if you have to really think about it. So I think the, the way that you put it together was actually quite well. Um, I especially like what you say that you feel that there's first a concept before somebody sees you. Um, And I feel like a lot of people tend to have that experience as well, because a lot of us, when we walk into, indeed, what you call whatever, that we tend to call a Dutch frame. And when you one step into it as a newcomer, looking very much different than the rest, it does influence how people will treat you from that moment on. Um, And I feel, I, I, for example, have experienced that very often that the moment that you're somebody who has just a little darker skin, and you tend to have a different accent, but you do have a lot of knowledgeable information that then there is some kind of respect that's being toned upon to you. Um, But you still have to find your way and you still have to win your place and try to keep it there while you tend to, as long as you plan on staying within that frame. Um, Giona, I don't know if you want to react upon this because um, I'm sure you have also had something similar to this.
0: Yeah, I think it's very important, like Quincy already mentioned, to state that it's a gender thing but it's also like in a sense a colorist thing because i am a light-skinned woman like my dad is light-skinned black and my mom is asian but i people project on me that i'm asian until they hear me talk and hear my caribbean accent and then the blackness cards come come out they put that on the table like oh so you're caribbean oh and then they make stupid jokes that pertain more to the blackness of being caribbean so that's the negotiation also that you know like I want to pinpoint that it's very important because it is gendered, but it's also colorist, I guess, or actually in that respect. And as a woman at the same time, sometimes I'm the only woman at a table uh, with a lot of white uh, women and men. Um, And that's, yeah, that's also a different dynamic, you know? So it's gendered, it's colorist, it's complex. (laughs) But uh, let's go to Lizanne, what she has to say on this question.
3: Um, Yeah, so uh, I think it's best for me to first draw a context here um, because I was born and raised in the Netherlands and I'm a child of migrants. My parents are from Cape Verde, not from the Caribbean. Uh, And so so in 2014, I migrated to Curacao. And actually, when you asked this question, Eva, the first thing that popped up in my mind was um, a situation here in Curacao. Because when we talk about Dutch spaces, there are Dutch spaces here in Curacao as well. Um, And it was about me looking for an apartment. And I saw this uh, advertisement for an apartment that I thought was interesting with a phone number. And when I called, without thinking about it, I put on this very, very, very Dutch accent. So talking about code switching, well, it was there and it surprised myself. So I, I surprised myself doing that. While I was talking, I became aware of what I was doing. Um, so unconsciously, I thought that I would be a, I would be seen as a better candidate. If I would at least sound Dutch, um, and I think that in that matter, language here, the Dutch language here sp- um, plays a very big role, because I think that in that unconsciousness, I also knew that or expected them for uh, if for them to associate me with Netherlands and. Uh, obviously, with having a better chance to get th- that apartment, even though they would later see me and see that I was obviously not white Dutch. Um, yeah, so that that is an example that popped up in my mind. Um, I'm not necessarily sure how I would do that in this moment because this was a year, a couple of years ago. Uh, I think 2015, something like this. Uh, Yeah, but it shows, it shows uh, something. (laughs) Thank you. Um, We have more
0: space later to maybe talk together upon this, but I'm going to the second question um, which is, and I will uh, copy paste it in the chat as well. Um, The second question is, uh, what are the coping mechanisms you have developed in the time that you have been living in the Netherlands, how are the laws in the Netherlands maybe shaped around their rights and policies and that which have consequences for migrants, for example, um, and how like, how we cope with that in certain circumstances. So actually let's just focus on the first part, which is like the coping mechanisms that we have developed in the time that we have been living in the Netherlands. And maybe uh, Quincy, you can, answer that from your frame of reference, from your work. And then you can do that afterwards as well. So the coping mechanisms you have developed in the time that you have been living in the Netherlands and how do you see that in uh, yeah, your line of work in politics or maybe law or whatever.
1: As we explained in the previous two episodes, our road to the Netherlands has been one of many obstacles, explorations and discoveries. Putting these elements together comes the question, How do we as Caribbean migrants cope with it all? This question gives space for subjectivity because every single Caribbean person living abroad has different coping mechanisms in order to keep that part of their identity alive. Because as we know, our identity is ever changing, but the core of who we are and where we come from is sacred for us all. In a place where we are far from home, where we practice our culture adaptability, and possibly exchange or possibly hide away or possibly forget. What is it that us Caribbean folks do to keep the essence of our being aflame? For both Kion and I, it comes in many forms. From typical Caribbean food like pastechi, funchi, even a real juicy mango, bolo de cachupete or cashew cake. These are just a few examples. Next to food, We love carnival music, Latin music. Think of, for example, reggaeton, salsa, merengue. We love our folkloric music, music from Caribbean artists like Irsais, Isalincalister, Padulampe. For example, Grupo di Petico, which you specifically play during Christmas time. Speaking Papiamento with our friends and other islanders from Curaçao and Bonaire is probably one of the most enriching mechanisms out there for us because... There is a deep sense of awakening when you hear someone on the streets speaking your mother tongue, because at that moment, you do not feel alone. Creating safe spaces and creating our own table for our communities and filling gaps where needed are also coping mechanisms that we cannot let pass us by. Another coping mechanism is most definitely when the sun is out and shining, because we are children of the sun. We need sun in our lives, not only to cope with the cold weather, but because we are born under the sun and having a lack of it makes us ill. Writing is also one of the few precious ways of keeping our thoughts and feelings validated which is extremely healing and a necessary mechanism. If you were to ask other Caribbean beings what their coping mechanisms are you will find that there is common ground between the many ways of coping but the experience, the feeling and the result of coping is very individual. We must also remember that what takes us back home also has the origin of another place. When we listen to the music we love, eat the food we love, and speak the languages we know, we are also connecting with the culture behind all of which we love and know. Even though we have a lot of complex differences that do make us indeed the many different human beings that we are, we find common ground nevertheless in the manners of coping. While we all lead different narratives of our lives, the Caribbean-ness in us connects us even from distances apart. And this can be the biggest and most beautiful coping mechanism of them
2: all. I think for me, it's um, it's one of those weird things where, you know, you're born with a Dutch passport, you're told you're a citizen, and then when you come to the Netherlands, you're... you're Confronted with the fact that actually, no, <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not as cut and as out as it seems. And so the, the coping mechanisms with that is, um, I think for me, becomes this, this constant wanting to ask questions and to the questions poking holes in the norm or what is seen as normal. So for me, it's it is constantly about showing that this is not normal, this is strange, this is alien, um, and what I'm experiencing is not something that's isolated or only personal to me, but it's something that's a collective experience in a certain sense, or something that is shared, um, and that that umheimlich, you know, feeling, that sense of just quite not being in sync. Um, finding people that also have this sense that this is not quite in sync, this is not quite working, it has been one of my coping mechanisms. And I think for me, a really important part of that, the last 10 years, has been um, the, the community that formed around the Black Europe Body Politics Conference, um, where I first went to in 2012. And I think in 2013, I met Lisanne there as well. It's been a while. Um, And going to more of those types of conferences, those types of um, meetings, symposia. I remember in 2010, doing the Black Europe um, summer school from NINSE, also meeting an international group of people who were saying, like, hey, this is indeed a bit messed up. Um, This is not quite gelling. This is not quite right. And that for me has been the most important aspect of it, finding community in that sense. Um, Because a lot of times what happens is that this country gaslights you and tells you that your reality or the reality that you're experiencing is not what you're experiencing. It's telling you that your sense of justice, your sense of ethics um, is off compared to the norm. And that the things that you see as unjust or the things that you experience as um, a migrant or as a person of color or as a black person or a queer person or a non-binary person, um, that those things are not things that you're supposed to express, that you're supposed to keep it in and that you're the problem once you once you denote it. And that's also talking um, truly, you know, what Sarah Ahmed has been talking about when she looks at complaints, also when she talks about the killjoy, and I think one of the things for me, uh, one coping mechanism has been realizing that my existence makes me a decolonial killjoy, um, anti-racist killjoy. That my presence alone walking into a space upsets people um, because of their own expectations, but also because I poke holes in what they think should remain whole. Um and realizing that that is what I do and that is what I do in my communities um, has been for me really important and, and healing in a sense.
1: Thank
0: you, Quincy. Um, yeah, that touches my heart because I think community has been one of the most important things for me as well, living here the past 10 years. But I also wanted to pinpoint like for you Quincy, because you moved to the, you have a similar experience of as a student moving to the Netherlands Um, could you maybe shortly talk about that like you know that you now you're living that parallel life of going back and forth but you came to the Netherlands as well on at a certain age to study right and were you always planning on having that parallel life or that by being culture or how was that for you when you first moved here?
2: I think in that sense, I'm I'm a bit different than most Bursala because my mom and my brother also came along. So the family unit moved one time here. Um, and I think that that does a lot in terms of uh, support, support systems, grounding in a certain sense. Um, and I think that does a lot also in terms of thinking through, you know, when I miss my mom, I could just go home to my mom, right? And for a lot of Bersala, when they miss family, going back home, like you said, is a 500, 600 euro ticket. Um, and that's that makes it that much more um, different. And I think for me as well, coming here initially to study theater, film and television study, studies and then ending up in gender studies, post-colonial studies, cultural sociology, all this kind of stuff. Um, also in, a, in one hand disillusioned me of what the possibilities were at that time of education and also lit a fire under me to change that. So one of the most interesting aspects of my career the last couple of years is that a lot of, Institutions um, have been asking me to come and give guest lectures or to be tutors. And I've been able to enact a different type of pedagogical system that I would have liked to experience when I first came. Um, and I found afterwards as I as I continued studying and, and jumping from module to module. Um, and I think for me that's been one of the ways in which I've I've realized that I've put into action the things that I was missing. Um, And I've been um, invited by by institutions that have allowed me in that sense to also question their institutional practices and their ways of dealing with first-generation students, migrant students, um, students that come with a different aesthetic background, uh, different um, knapsack of choices um, and different cues, visual cues that they put in their work which also adds to a different type of um, trajectory within the course. Because I remember initially a lot of the things that I, I was talking about or, or a lot of references that I had just didn't gel with what the teachers were presenting. And, and realizing that and then making the effort to find um, what it is that the students use and what it is that they come from and actively asking them to contribute that to the conversations changes a completely, um, makes a completely different dynamic in the classroom. And so for me, that was, that was important.
1: Yeah, thank you. I think that adds a lot of context to,
0: uh, a layer of the dynamic of when a, a Bursaal and a student comes to the Netherlands and having that support system. We talk about that in the previous episodes as well. Lizanne, do you want to enlighten us with your answer to this question, the coping mechanisms you have developed in the time you have been living in the Netherlands, which for you is a very long time as well, because that's, you know,
3: tell your story. <laughs> Thank you. Not sure about the enlightening, but uh, let me react. Um, I somehow feel, feel like I, I need to tell you about this video I saw that was showed during a course I took. That course was on human rights education. Um, I've done research on human rights education myself. Uh, and in that course, they showed a video uh, made, I think, in Denmark. And that video was made after a court decision uh, defining who is Danish and who is not. Um, which, well, in uh, in law, you have to right, make definitions uh, to be able to make uh, decisions. But uh, this was quite far-fetching. And um, it, it made, obviously, a division between... Danish people and non Danish people. But what they did in this video was ask, no, saying to young children that they were not Danish. So, children of about, I think, nine to 10 years, who according to this definition were not Danish, they would sit them in front of the camera and tell them, you're not Danish. And you could see. Well, first, the different reactions. I mean, confusion, uh, pain, uh, sadness, all those different uh, emotions. Uh, But what, for me, first of all, it was very hard for me to see. Um, Also, I questioned if it was ethical for this video to be made in this way, because these are children. And you're confronting them with, well, Vince was talking about, you know, being me and being in this concept. And um, these children were being told by um, uh, grown-ups that they were not what they thought they were. Um, So I think I wanted to mention mention this to also show how personal these things are. So even if you find ways to be yourself, um, whatever that self is and however that changes, uh, there's always these institutionalized um, concepts of who you are or uh, who you're supposed to be. Um, And it's difficult navigating in, in, in that world, this world. Uh, So what resonated with me when Quincy was answering the question was um, asking questions. Uh, I also felt for a long time that things didn't make sense. Uh, Although I couldn't really pinpoint what it was that didn't make sense. And I thought, I think that maybe that has to do with the fact that I am, I was born in the Netherlands and I did grow up in the Netherlands. So I was raised within certain Ideas and looking at the world, looking at the Netherlands, or the place where I lived, even though uh, my parents are obviously um, migrants. So um, I learned also to ask questions. But what I think I did not do as much was following up on the questions. So I... I'm able to ask questions and maybe poke holes and maybe create a possibility for someone to see that it doesn't make sense what they're seeing. But then the next step would be, I think, to create something new. And that is a part that I find quite difficult still to do. Um, But I think that that's the path I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, choosing to uh, invest in um so that was a part of my answer what i also wanted to mention is the the feeling of um things not making sense i had that for many years also during my studies so i studied law um and i was trained In being very capable in applying and understanding uh, a law. You know, working with that system. uh, But without it giving me the answers that I needed. So what for me worked and was an eye-opener was actually a course. uh, Which is called the Decolonial Option. uh, That is given in Middleburg. uh, And there i was introduced also to black feminism uh, and people like alana Lockworth were there patricia kersenhout um, and after that also i went to bebop that's where indeed i uh, met quincy the first quincy the first time but that for me was a real eye opener just one course <laughs> in which they were able to show me that one, indeed, things don't make sense the way we are taught in very singular ways. And two, they also gave me tools, I guess, to, to deal with that. One other thing that I want to mention uh, with regard to that course is an art project by Patricia Kersenhout. Um in which I was confronted with how deep this uh, or these experiences of it not making sense were um, embodied actually in me, without me knowing. So I hope I, I explained it right, but I uh, even more, I hope that she'll do something more with this uh, with this art uh, is that she put some of the students, what I was one of them, uh, in the middle of the room, on a t- uh, at a table. And she had a couple of old uh, scientific books and history books in the middle of the table and then a couple of tools. Uh, tools like scissors and knives and also markers, black markers, etc. And the only thing she told us was that we could do with the books whatever we wanted. And she would walk around and um, read up a text from a black woman uh, from the past. So she actually brought in that woman in that space. Um, so I just took a book and I didn't really see how this was going to impact me or no, I, I wasn't really seeing what she was Trying with this um, performance, I guess. Um, so I just took a book without thinking too much about it, and it was a scientific book, a uh, German book. And I started to look in it, and suddenly I felt the urge. I saw a couple of uh, scientists, pictures of scientists in the book, and I suddenly felt the urge to grab a black marker and scratched them all out, except for their eyes. Their texts were gone, their faces were gone, their bodies were gone. So their information was also gone, the texts were gone. And then I wrote in big letters, how does it feel to not have a story? And I was quite shocked by the reaction that, yeah, that. That was my reaction on what was, yeah, given to me, I guess. And I felt shaken and kept this feeling for a couple of days, actually. Because I was not aware of how much it has affected me that the stories that were told, or were I was told a lot of the time. Are very singular and excluding, and very white male, uh, rational, scientific, etc. So, I guess that links back to the video I was talking about in the beginning. A very long answer. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks. We
0: are already listening to the third episode of this podcast, and we have heard many similarities between the stories of the hosts and the speakers. But do not get it twisted, though. The current-day Caribbean people are no monolith. The current Caribbean area is a vast region with an array of stories, a lot of differences. That means that many stories have not been shared across this region itself or have been lost throughout time. Sometimes that can be seen as something logical in the context of history. You know, things happen, things change. Some stories are deemed more important than others. But always remember that dominant narratives penetrate current-day views on the Caribbean people. A narrative that often gets forgotten is that of the diversity of the aborigines of this region the indigenous people, stories of the Caliñas, for example, just like the one Caitlin was talking about in episode one. Other lost narratives are the ones, for example, of indentured laborers. To be fair, these narratives are not lost, but often aren't spoken of in the current discourse of the Caribbean. We have the Irish indentured laborers, like the ones in Barbados. They were indentured by the British. We also have a widespread group of indentured laborers from different regions in India. They come from places like Uttar Pradesh, Punjab, Haryana, Bihar and Tamil Nadu. We have a large legacy of stories as well of Chinese indentured laborers. And not to forget the Javanese people from Indonesia. You know, colonialism keeps itself intact by forms of oppressive free or cheap labor. Through these stories and these indentured laborers, these systems were kept in place, even after the so-called freeing of the enslaved people that worked on the plantations before them. Another example of this is the corvée system in Haiti. During the first half of the 20th century, US colonial forces forced Haitians to work to so-called better the infrastructure of the Haitian land. I didn't even get to the narratives of the local music forms, dance compositions, patterns of embroidery, dialects, spirituality, religions, everything that happens on the streets in the barrios. All of these memories, all of these songs that we were singing when we were children, for example, they were kept in informal spaces like under the mango tree, in our houses, on Sundays when we barbecue. They live through us because we are the archives, but maybe it's good to also find ways of preserving these memories outside of, of ourselves. They are woven with colonial structures, but have parts of our lives that form our whole spectrum of memories. Yeah, it's um, to me, it makes perfect sense in a very storytelling narrative kind of way, actually. So I think uh, I enjoyed listening to your answer in that sense. I'm looking a little bit at the time. We have about five to eight minutes before we get to the second segment. Ava, do you want to add anything
1: or ask something? Um, I especially, uh, because I heard your story very attentively, and then for you to finish it with, how does it feel to not have a story? Honestly, I can't even imagine what kind of role you would even have to begin to take for you to actually start to discover where you're from and who you really are and what your true purpose is in that sense. Um, But I also very much enjoyed that, that conceptual twist within your story because in the end, what it did to you was that it made you realize that how you are internalized is actually not how it's supposed to be. And today you look at things very much differently. Um, and I feel like actually that's a story that you should tell more often, because <laughs> because to be honest, it's the question, how does it feel to not have a story? I think this podcast is also based slightly on that factor, how that with the fact that we're actually having these kind of conversations are actually trying to gather those fragmentations of us that are part of our story. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I was very impressed by that story. So thank you so much for sharing that. Quincy do you have anything
0: to add or thoughts on what Lizanne said or anything else?
2: I I think for me um listening to the impact of of Patricia's work and the way in which that calls up um and resonates within the depths of of our being in a certain sense um is is magical and I think to have that in a classroom, have that happen during a course, also makes it that much more important to realize um, the roles that we have as well when we when we enter into those spaces and what we take with us from those moments. So um, I think that's yeah, it's really 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 nice to hear. Yeah, Patricia's great. So this is pretty awesome. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Ava, maybe you want to introduce the second segment?
1: Welcome to the second segment called Treasures We Keep, where we talk with our guests on the things they bring to the table related to home, be it a picture, sound, song, poem, a.k.a. treasure. Absolutely. I would love to. Um, So our guests have already moved been more or less informed about the second segment that we prepare during each episode. Uh, During each episode, we have a second segment called Treasures We Keep. And the point of this segment is for our guests to bring uh, forward a object of any kind of form. It doesn't matter. It can be from a poem to a song to a singing or a very interesting story that we just heard from Lisanne, for example, um, in any shape or form whatsoever. And we ask these guests to bring these treasures because These treasures mean something to them. It resonates with who they are in some ways. It can resonate to a place where they come from because we all come from different nests, as we've already been able to hear in the three episodes already. Um, So this is Treasures We Keep, and we're very curious to hear what our guests have brought today. And I'm looking at Quincy. I don't know if you want to present your treasure.
2: Yeah, so the treasure I want to present... um is the memory of playing Monopoly with my cousins in the 1990s. And that would be one of those moments where we get to stay up until like two in the morning, um, where it's the middle of summer and everyone's just over at my grandparents' place. And my grandparents had this wonderful uh, salon table with like a light that was orange and it was hanging just above the table. So you could see the board, but you could see our faces kind of in like this dusk color. Um, And then, or we either would be playing in the other room in front of the TV set, which was connected to the antenna, which you would have to turn to catch like the channels when it wasn't working. So you could catch like Bonaire and Aruba and like Venezuela and stuff, but just turning it and then someone be shouting from inside like, hey, is it is it working? Is it working? And then you turn it and you... It's, so that's the memory I bring with me. Um, Cause that moment of community and that moment of thinking about playing together um, and playing this this game, which afterwards I found out was a really actually communist Marxist game about property and about the ills of property. And doing that as descendants of people who were seen as property on this island, which is still seen as property, has like this drosta effect in my mind the whole time. Like as kids, what were we doing? And how were we preparing to to deal with like the colonial logic of seeing us as uh, as debt, um, seeing us as profit unfulfilled or seeing us as futures, literally, if you talk about the the stock exchange, the stock exchange deals with futures and deals with potential futures. Um, And for me, um, the way in which you would negotiate and the way in which this notion of rent and this notion of like the hotels that you build and uh, you pass, go and you get money, you get like a, um, you get a salary. And me actively choosing not to have this this setting of a salary, of a fixed salary is like, <laughs> Just to make it all that much. Because when I got the question, I was thinking to myself, what could I bring? Like, what would it be? And for me, it's this memory, which, which now in hindsight, um, this, this action, this move, this playing together as cousins has meant a lot uh, of my own development and, and thinking about how I deal with others, how I cooperate, how I collaborate, um, and how I like to, to play with others in a the, in the literal sense.
1: Thank you very much. I absolutely love uh, your treasure because I mean, I think uh, I, I look at my co-host and I look at of course our guestly Zen. I'm sure we all have these memories of family playing board games at home um, and taking it very much seriously. Um, but I especially like that you make that switch to actually, uh, yeah, I want to call it kind of like a realistic metaphor because you kind of explain it so explicitly that it is actually a kind of a reality that we do live in today. Um, it's kind of like you're playing with the characters of your own story and just throwing them there on the board. And then you see where you go. And sometimes you win, sometimes you not, you don't, but no, I think it's very interesting because I think most of us know as well, a very typical uh, Caribbean thing to play is also domino. Um, and that's also something that <laughs> tends to come forward very much as well, that when you try to play that, that, that game and having to know how to play it and It also is a sort of a negotiation at that moment too. And since we are talking about the negotiations that we do with our identity today, I I can't find this treasure more suiting. So thank you very much for bringing this forward. Um, I look at Lizen with a huge smile on her face and I'm very curious to hear what you are bringing today.
3: Well, I'm actually laughing because we both uh, chose for something (laughs) non-tangible. All
1: right. Actually,
3: I started off with the idea of bringing, actually bringing something in uh, or well, actually bringing an object in, which was going to be the picture of my grandma, uh, the mother of my mother, Um, because, uh, well, she passed away when my mother was pregnant of me. Um, So I never knew her in real life, but she's very much uh, present in my life. Um, And, well, what people, I I think they cannot see in the the images is that I'm pregnant myself right now. Um, And I'm in Curacao. So I actually asked my mother to send me a picture, uh, a framed picture that I have in my room there in the Netherlands, uh, to send it to me here in Curacao, but it's still on its way. And being here today recording this and it being... On its way was actually something that I thought, well, that actually fits very well. Um, Because a lot of things are constantly on their way or in between, if you want to call it like that, uh, within my experiences um, and what has shaped me. Um, And what I like about this in betweenness is that even if it or they are not there yet or just not there, in a tangible way, they're very much here. Um, so even if my grandma is on her way, I know that she's already here. Um, and that is something that uh, is very much something that I live, actually. Uh, so if I look at my background in in, in Cape Verde, uh, but also now my life in between the Netherlands and, and uh, Curacao. So, so um, yeah, my grandma. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Like both of what you share makes me think about a lot of things that are treasures to me in my daily life. Like, for example, for from what Quincy said, is that I remember as a kid when I was, I think, seven, eight years old, I used to play, you could say, toko of vinculche, I would gather all of my, (laughs) all of the things that I had, like puzzles and my Barbies and stuff, and I would like put prices on them. And I would tell my friends, you can, (laughs) you can buy them from me. (laughs) And as well with my cousins. So I'm realizing that from a young age, I always, you could say it could come from the sort of the dynamics of socioeconomic situations that I saw around me and that I lived through because being Caribbean for me specifically also meant different socioeconomical status like statuses all in one in my the dynamics that I have in my daily life uh, from school to family to family friends everything I was very aware of that and what that meant for different people Uh, so I always remembered like think okay if I can get enough money I could help Let's say, for example, my neighbor back then who was uh, illegal, nobody is illegal, but in that sense, illegal by the government and that she needed to hide and stuff when the people came to check out if there was anybody living there at home to help her. So it was always this negotiation as a kid already of like, okay, getting funds to help people. (laughs) So that kind of sparked what Quincy said for me. And um, what you said, Lizanne, really makes me think about like those intangible, but tangible stories or that become tangible or embodied, I would say in some way, um, those oral traditions or things, people, places that have maybe been erased or passed on in your specific case, but that you carry with you every day or that you can converse with or have a dynamic with, even though they or it isn't present anymore in a tangible way. And that's my great grandma for me that I'm doing a project on as well as like, she helps me get through my day-to-day, this parallel life, even though I never met her. So thank you both for sharing, you know, this. This is, uh, it's, a, it's affirming for me as well to hear this. Ava, I don't know if you wanted to say anything else or?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, being that we also talk about being Caribbean, I feel that being Caribbean is very much also being spiritual. Um, and Lizen's story very much touches that area for me. Um, you know, people who may not be with us, they are still very much around us. And in that case, uh, I know, I don't know how, how your family have, but I know that a lot of my family members have like shrines with a lot of photos from people who were before us or are with us still. And it just has a very big impact on how you're shaped in that sense and how you tend to go on about your day. Um... And I feel that the story that you shared, you know, that it might not be a tangible one and her grandmother might not be there, but she's on her way or she's already there, you know. And I think you will eventually feel it when that picture is there, you know, once it arrives and you put it upon wherever that you want to hang it on. You will feel that switch in your house, too. It's like you feel it. There's legit like a nice, how do you call that? When you get married and then they put this thing on your head. It's literally that. It's like that little last complete little detail before you can actually say, "Yeah, she's here," and I feel it, and I feel that that's a very big factor in being Caribbean. We're very much spiritual, and we very much keep in touch with those who come before us. When we say that we want to honor our the those who came before us, in that sense, you honor your ancestors, and and I think it's a beautiful story that you brought forward. And uh, for Quincy, the same thing, you know. Um, I think there's a very big factor that plays in. When you bring forward such a memory that you're with your family and um, these very dusty nights that you want to play Monopoly and you realize that that has such a big influence in your life afterwards. And I think that's really beautiful. And I can really see that today in both of you, actually, and how things have shaped you uh, in a very small fragment, of course, because we only have that one hour to have a conversation. But I feel that this conversation today has really opened uh, some some windows in my heart. Uh, I look at Guiana. Um, and I'm sure it meant the same for you. Um, is there anything that you would like to add? Or maybe our guests would like to add anything? Throughout this
0: conversation with Quincy, Lizen, Ava and I, it becomes very apparent that forms of etheric, religious, spiritual parts, things, objects, are normal notions in our day-to-day lives. Maybe especially so as well while living our in-between lives here in the Netherlands. A lot of different artists, makers from the Caribbean diaspora that are living in the Netherlands or in between as well, incorporate forms of of these types of notions in their work. People like Darwin Winkler, Nene creates, Winna with his song "Winty," Josie from Papimenta designs with her graphic design work, and Alejandro Caldera. I honestly also use it in my day-to-day work. Throughout the Caribbean, widespread use of Catholic, indigenous, Afro-diasporic relics, songs, poems are used to exalt and oftentimes obviously also appropriated. We also see it in common phrases that grandmas, moms and aunties use back home and even on social media. Phrases like Dios bendiciónavo, Dios te bendija or bless you child are things we have often heard while growing up in the Caribbean. We see it in how we experience carnival as well throughout the region, where for example Juve Morning is also a symbol of celebrating the ancestors that have come before us. <laughs> Don't even get me started on the fact that almost all schools or roads where Ava and I grew up in Aruba have a name that is connected to a Catholic saint, but obviously it extends further than the European religion of Catholicism or Protestantism. Look at the Winti religion or voodoo forms throughout the region, for example. These Afro-diasporic religions are the hybrids that form throughout the bodies of Afro-descendants that were enslaved. Also, oftentimes, connected, brewed with Catholic or Protestant notions in there. Sage, Ayahuasca, Palo Santo are other examples of etheric objects Closely connected to the aborigines of the Caribbean region that are used to maintain and connect in day-to-day higher realms. For a life of the in-between, like we are talking about within this episode, for the current millennial group of people, spirituality connected to these forms of back home, notions of back home, are used to create connection and a higher meaning in our day-to-day lives for ourselves. It connects us to a wider community in the new country. It connects us to a wider community back home. and it just enhances our general livelihoods oftentimes. I'm good, Quincy, Lizanne, anything you would like to still add?
2: Well, I think for me it's it's beautiful to think about this picture that's on the way while the memory is already there. Um, so, also, in this moment of like becoming, um, I think it's a it's a really, like you say, it's it's, you know, whenever whenever we open up a new bottle to drink something, we pour some for the ancestors first, and then we drink ourselves. Um, that's what that's one of those things that comes up in my mind when I think about it. Um, so that's pretty beautiful. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah,
3: well, having this conversation or yeah doing this recording I realized again that this spiritual part you can call it spiritual part is very very important but it's difficult to give it a place outside of the personal space Um, so I think well, then probably the example about, you know, Patricia Kersenhaus work performance within a university is maybe an, an a good example of the fact that it can be done. There can be, yeah, it is possible to create space for it in, in, in public spaces. Um, maybe we should do something about that more. <laughs>
0: Yeah, what, what it really sparks in me, what you say, Lizanne, is I think um, in a very, because I'm a historian, in a very broad sense is every time I read old texts or texts about um, Black folks, for example, who are enslaved or historical narratives is that about the communities that I'm from, let's just put it like that, like Caribbean, Indonesian, Black, um, as well, and the mix being Creole, is that even in the oral stories that haven't passed down, is that the the spiritual aspect of the presence. So it can be a presence of you know, like your grandma or my grandma or anyone's grandma or ancestors. But our own presence is always stronger than a than an institute or the four walls that we see. And I think we're it's always been parallel because th- that presence has always been strong our presence has always been strong um and at the same time it's also time that we have our own public spaces because the parallel thing that has been happening is that decolonizing I'm doing it with like air quotations is because decolonizing is a very spiritual practice for me personally it's also embodying and standing and being like okay this is my presence and you have to deal with it this is not a me problem anymore it's a New problem if I talk about being in institutes and that institutes at the same time want to kind of facilitate people that aren't inherently feeling safe or at home in their space um, but at the same time it's really important to indeed like you say think about what are our institutions do we want institutions or do we want spaces and what does that space mean does it need to have four walls or Do we think we need those four walls? Because that's what we're used to or um, kind of coded to think that we need them in the society, which is obvious, the capitalistic society that we live in. So I think those notions are something I want to um, round off with. Ah, the thank yous. I want to thank Mama Papa, and in this episode, especially in remembrance of my Om Eddie, and in remembrance of Abdul Karim, they always saw the best in me, my potential, and they were never afraid to keep reminding me of it. I miss you both very much. Also, a thank you to my lovely co-host and partner in podcast crime, Ava. A thank you to Rivia again because of all of the things that you do for me. A thank you to Onyas for always inspiring me and helping me to push through and forward. If you don't know his work, go check it out. His current work, Kunu, is amazing. Also, a thank you to Thabo. I met you a few years ago in Germany. You flew in from South Africa. I rode in with the train from Rotterdam. You humbled me and inspired me, made me see my privileges even more, and you reminded me of my strength. Thank you. Also a big thank you to Baylula and the little baby, y'all gave me
1: hope. I love you. The thank yous. Well every episode is so different and I am always inspired and influenced by so many different people each and every single time. So here we go. I'd like to thank my mom who is always testing me and my knowledge and forever expanding it. Wendy, always supporting my work no matter what and for being patient and kind always. My lovely co-host, Guiana, who I constantly learn from, not only from this experience, but in life as well. I'd like to thank the six island zine girls as well for always being an example when it comes to these kind of conversations. The same counts for Canoas di Caribe, Shari and Ila. You guys are great. I'm very happy to be on this journey with you as well. Also to Caribbean and Club for being one of the biggest safe spaces organized by Alfie and her partner Daoudi. Our guests for this episode, Quincy Gario and Lisanne Delgado, you are both very inspiring. Also a huge thanks to my colleagues for being one of the few diamonds in the rough where I can grow and learn and forever growing into my forever changing identity with. Much love to you all.
0: Also a big thank you to our team, Caribbean Ties, Museum and Mondrian Fund. Thank you for tuning in and we'll be right back around with the next episode soon.